Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It's good to be back. We've got a lot to cover, so we'll get right to it. First up, we'll do orders. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear former President Trump's immunity case. The question, which will be argued the week of April 22nd, is whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? Stay tuned. That will certainly be a very big case. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a big election law term. The court refused to take an important case, this one challenging the racially discriminatory admissions procedures used at Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, a once elite high school in Northern Virginia, did something similar to what Harvard did in the case last term. It reduced the number of Asian and white students, but unlike Harvard, it was clever about how it did it. It didn't engage in explicit race discrimination. Rather, Thomas Jefferson figured out how to reduce the numbers of Asians and whites through a host of race-neutral means. For example, because it knows where most Asians live, it de-emphasized applications from those zip codes and a host of other racially neutral but discriminatory ineffect tools. Now, this case, the challenge to these sorts of tools, seemed like a slam dunk after students are fair admissions versus Harvard, but the court refused to take the case, leaving Thomas Jefferson's racially discriminatory admissions processes in place. Justice Thomas and Justice Alito would have taken the case, calling the lower court's decisions aberrant. The case is profoundly disappointing and sort of leaves you wondering immediately whether the court was actually serious when it said that racial discrimination and admissions are not tolerated next term, uh, last term, and whether or not the court has sort of caved to the backlash that it got from the liberal press uh, over that decision. You know, GC, this decision is doubly disappointing, especially given the court's recent decision not to step in and halt West Point's use of race and admissions. You know, as you and our listeners may recall, in the Harvard and UNC cases, the chief justice, somewhat inexplicably, carved out military academies from the decision. So Students for Fair Admissions, the group that brought those cases against Harvard and UNC, also brought this follow-up case challenging West Point's use of race in admissions. While the Supreme Court declined to grant Student for Fair Admissions emergency motion, Its order did make the point that this denial, quote, should not be construed as expressing any view on the merits of the constitutional question. So there may be more that the court's willing to say on this front. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it seems like, you know, last term the court said, you know, racial discrimination is a bad thing. And now this term, well, we're not really so sure. Hmm. Well, hopefully they will uh, get back on the right track sooner rather than later. Next, we'll move into the court's opinions. The court did issue two opinions last week, and one is worth briefly mentioning here. It's McElrath versus Georgia. In this case, a Georgia jury convicted Damian McElrath of felony murder and aggravated assault for the murder of his mother. The facts of the case, like many criminal cases, are, are tragic. However, this same jury also found him not guilty by reason of insanity for malice murder. Uh, When Georgia charged him, they originally charged him with malice murder, assault, and then felony murder. 
because the two verdicts the jury reached were inconsistent with each other, the Georgia Supreme Court set them aside as being repugnant and remanded the case for McElrath to be retried on all charges. Now, as anyone who's familiar with the Fifth Amendment's Double Jeopardy Clause knows, uh, this presents a problem, and McElrath contended that a retrial on the malice murder count would violate the Fifth Amendment's prohibition on double jeopardy. Justice Jackson, in a quick 10-page opinion, unanimous opinion for the court, wrote uh, that McElrath was correct and that Georgia's attempt to retry him after the acquittal on the malice murder charge did, in fact, violate the Double Jeopardy Clause. And that brings us to oral arguments. We had a host of them these last couple weeks. I'll start with Corner Post versus the Federal Reserve. This is another case litigated by our brilliant friends over at Constable McCarthy, and it raises the question when the statute of limitations begins tolling for Administrative Procedure Act claims against federal agencies. The plaintiff here, Corner Post, is a convenience store that opened in 2018. In 2021, it challenged a rule from the Federal Reserve System that governs debit card transaction fees. That rule was created in 2011, so the Federal Reserve argued that the six-year statute of limitations had expired. If you wanted to sue, the Fed said to Corner Post, you had to do it by 2017. To which Corner Post responded, how could we have done that if we didn't exist before 2018? An excellent question, but one which the justices weighed against another, which is if new entities can sue over old rules, would it open Pandora's box for litigation? Hard to say how the justices were leaning at oral argument. Obviously, the liberals were on the government side, but Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh both expressed uh, concerns about opening Pandora's litigation box. You know, GC, you mentioned earlier that this term is shaping up to be a very consequential one in terms of the cases involving Donald Trump and the upcoming election. But I think it's also shaping up to be a very consequential term for issues involving the administrative state, agency actions, the APA, those types of issues. And I think that's shown also by the the next case uh, we'll talk about, where the court heard arguments in Ohio versus EPA. In this case, Ohio and a number of other states and trade associations had sued to block an EPA pollution regulation involving industrial facilities and power plants. As with many administrative cases, the question presented here is whether the agency followed the right procedure in implementing its rule. In short, a law requires upwind states to submit pollution management plans to ameliorate the effect of their pollution on downwind states. 21 states did this, but the EPA rejected all of their plans. 12 of those states, however, won temporary judicial victories against the EPA's rejection, But rather than wait to see how those cases shook out, the APA issued a nationwide pollution plan. Here's the problem. Twelve states don't have to participate, meaning that the EPA's pollution plan is missing huge amounts of relevant pollution and pollution amelioration data. So how can the EPA's plan be reasoned and reasonable if it depends on all states participating and all the states are not participating? A majority of the justices were very skeptical of the EPA's position, so while it's always hard to say what the court will do, it's looking like the agency will have to likely go back to the drawing board in this case. And that brings us to 
two of the probably biggest cases argued this last week, the net choice cases. You know, GC, these certainly are two of the biggest cases this term. But what struck me about these cases, even before the arguments, was how the parties have lined up on either side of these cases. You had the state solicitor generals in Florida and Texas arguing in favor of enforcing their social media laws. And you had Paul Clement arguing on the other side, which is not something we see too often. Yeah. So NetChoice uh, is a conglomeration of big tech companies, including Facebook and X and other companies involved with social media in some way. And they're challenging laws in Florida and Texas that forbid those social media companies from censoring users because of their political views. The cases will turn on just exactly what these platforms do exactly. Do they just host other people's speech like a phone company? Are their content curation algorithms expressive decisions like a newspaper's editorial board? In picking and choosing what speech to censor and where, are the companies policing the public square? Obviously, these companies do a lot of all of these things, uh, and it can be hard to untangle what behavior is lawfully subject to regulation and what amounts to the company's own protected speech. At oral argument, Justices Jackson and Gorsuch keyed in on this sort of nuanced distinction about what the companies are doing when, both saying that whether the laws are constitutional depends on which of the website's many functions they regulate. Justices Alito and Thomas expressed shock that the companies would try to defend what they called Orwellian censorship as protected speech. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, on the other hand, seemed to think that the only sort of censorship worth worrying about is censorship by the federal government. Justices Kagan and Barrett seem to think that the platform's own content curation was expressive conduct, but they, like many other justices, wondered whether the record from below made all of the facts particularly clear. The companies brought what's called a facial challenge to these laws, which is a sort of challenge you bring if you argue that under no possible set of facts could the law be constitutional. But it seems that with the exception perhaps of Justice Kavanaugh, the justices aren't buying that a facial challenge is appropriate. They seem to think that there is some sort of conduct, maybe at the very least just when uh, social media companies platform other people's speech without their own editorial decisions, that is uh, subject to regulation. Uh, So I expect Texas and Florida will see an early win in these cases and that they'll be remanded to the lower courts to look more deeply at the factual record and the different operations that go on on social media websites. Lastly, the court heard arguments in Garland versus Cargill. This case involved the ATF's much maligned bump stock ban. Now, for those not familiar, a bump stock, when added to a semi-automatic firearm, allows it to fire at a high rate of speed, similar to how an automatic weapon would fire. However, because of mechanical differences in the way a bump stock functions and the way in which a true automatic weapon functions, the ATF has not historically categorized all bump stocks as machine guns. In 2018, though, the ATF issued a rule stating that all bump stocks would now qualify as machine guns and required those who owned these bump stocks to either destroy them or to surrender them to the ATF. Gun store owner Mike Cargill complied but challenged this new rule. The exact question the justices are being asked to resolve in this case is a fairly technical one. It's whether a bump stock is a machine gun under the relevant statute because it converts a gun into a weapon that fires, quote, automatically more than one shot by single function of the trigger. That last bit about the single function of the trigger is the key phrase. Expectedly, a lot of the oral argument focused on the way in which bump stocks and automatic weapons function. 
Justice Kagan had an interesting exchange with Jonathan Mitchell, who represented Cargill in this case, and as you may recall, he also represented Donald Trump in his ballot access case, and Justice Kagan has previously referred to Jonathan Mitchell for some of his work in the Texas legislature as, quote, some genius. Uh, So it's an interesting dynamic uh, playing out there. But in this exchange with Justice Kagan, Mitchell pointed out that the text of the statute explicitly references that a machine gun is a weapon that automatically fires more than one shot by a single function of the trigger, and bump stocks do not function in that way. Kagan said that while she considers herself, quote, a good textualist, that textualism is not inconsistent with common sense, and that in her view, When you, quote, apply a little bit of common sense to the way you read a statute, it becomes clear that what this statute comprehends is a weapon that fires a multitude of shots with a single human action. Now, to me, that view seems to be somewhat at odds with being a good textualist, but I guess time will tell what the justices will do in this case. Yeah, you can completely see Justice Kagan is trying to reach a decision which is at odds with the text and, importantly, at odds with approaches that she has taken in other cases uh, where a very strict textualist approach leads to a result that she likes. So I fully anticipate that whatever decision she reaches in this case will be impossible to square with her decision to sign on to Justice Gorsuch's strict textualist or literalist decision in Bostock. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned for a little fun judicial hypocrisy. GC, what's her interview this week? My interview this week is with John Vecchioni, who has one of the cases challenging Chevron, right after this. Conservative women are problematic women. Why? Because we don't adhere to the agenda of the radical left. Every Thursday morning on the Problematic Women podcast, Kristen Eichammer, Lauren Evans, and me, Virginia Allen, are joined by other conservative women to break down the big issues and news you care about. Whether you're interested in hot takes and conversations on pop culture or what Congress is up to, Problematic Women has you covered. We sort through the news to keep you up to date on the issues that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning, that is, problematic women. Find Problematic Women wherever you like to listen to podcasts and follow the show on Instagram. Well, we are joined today by John Vecchioni, Senior Litigation Counsel at New Civil Liberties Alliance. John joins us after getting two cases to the Supreme Court this term, Relentless and Cargill versus Garland, both of which challenge agencies. Um, and shall we say they're uh, creative expansions of their own powers. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. John, we'll get to the details of your cases in a minute, but first set the stage for us. What is New Civil Liberties Alliance and what do you do there? So the New Civil Liberties Alliance is relatively new. We're about five or six years old, nonprofit law firm. And what we do is we... uh, sue the government, usually administrative agencies, for violations of civil liberties. It was founded by Professor Phil Hamburger of Columbia University, who's written the book, Is Administrative Law Lawful? And we use many of his theories and ideas in our litigation. And uh, we've had now a couple of cases get to the Supreme Court. And, um, and for, you know, in five years, that's a, that's a pretty big lift. Yeah, no kidding. What was your path from law school to NCLA? So I 
uh, I clerked for a district court judge right out of law school um, up in Newark. And then I came down here and I just started at the K Street firms, a place called Ross and Hardy's. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a Chicago outfit. But I stayed on K Street for many, many years. Uh, and then in 2006, I went off to, um, in, in my own firm with a partner, and I, I, I did plaintiff's work suing pharmaceutical companies for a decade. And uh, I, I did that for a while. And then well, while those cases wrapped up, I was sitting at my, in my office deciding whether I was going to take another big bunch of pharmaceutical cases, what I was going to do. And I got a call from that judge I clerked for back in Newark almost 30 years before. <laughs> and uh, he said he was running a nonprofit law firm called Cause of Action. And did I want to come and help train young lawyers? And um, I looked at it and I thought that would be something interesting. So I went and eventually in a, in a couple of years, I was, I was president of that organization and you know them because they filed the Loper Bright case, um, and and um, I left uh, there to come to um, New Civil Liberties. I wanted to be a regular lawyer again, and and so um, you know not running a place, and so I then came to New Civil Liberties, uh, which uh, has a has a administrative law bent on the Constitution. And uh, that's how I, that's how I got here. That's the thumbnail. <laughs> what uh, first sparked your interest in administrative law? So the 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 well, I had Judge Silberman as my teacher for administrative law back in Georgetown many 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 years ago, and um, obviously he's a, he was a great judge, but he's also a very um, uh, interesting professor, and you know he he always had interesting co co-teachers, if you will, co-professors. But here it was primarily when I was at Cause of Action, I had not realized as much in private practice how many of our civil rights are at issue in administrative law. Um, and that's really, uh, that really hit me, um, how, how badly um, your civil rights can be affected by administrative agencies, where, which have no juries, uh, which often make up their own rules and all the rest of it. Can you give me an example of maybe one of your early cases where you first started to discover some of these things? Sure. Um, so I have uh, – uh, well, the, one of the first cases we had at Cause of Action was the Gaithold case, which was this exact uh, situation we have here but for groundfish. And um, this – it's almost Kafkaesque what happened in that case. So the government put in a um, uh, the agencies. The government didn't do it. The agencies put in a regulation that these at sea monitors had to be paid by the mackerel fisheries. Oh, I um, had no idea that this is relentless. Is basically a redux of. Uh huh. Wow. Yes. But what happens there? Well, they put this. The agencies put in this at sea monitoring for another fishery. They don't have any language on it. And, uh, you know, in the statute, there's nothing there. And so uh, the, the fishermen come to a they, – they then – what does the agency do? It just keeps delaying when it's going to – it puts it in the federal register so the rule goes into effect. And then they say, well, we're not going to – we're not going to put in this – we're not actually going to activate this rule um, for many years. So they wait two or three years. And then they finally tell the fishermen, oh, now we're going to enforce it and we're going to put these at-sea monitors or boat – and you're going to have to pay for it. And they sue, and we sue, because that's when they come to us. Well, 
the, there's a 30-day statute of limitations in the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, 30 days after the regulation. So we go through the district court, we go all the way up to the First Circuit, and Judge Souter, you know, he's, he's off the Supreme Court, but he still sits on the First Circuit, and he sat on that case, and he, and, uh, he didn't write it, but his colleague did. They, he wrote an opinion saying, you know, we have to dismiss this case on statute of limitations ground because you didn't come to us. Well, how are the fishermen right. going to know what the statute of limitations is on a regulation that's not ever being enforced against them? And and so you just see they never had an opportunity to go into court uh, with Chevron or not with Chevron at all because the statute of limitations had run by the machinations of the administrative agency to avoid litigation. Interesting. That is devious. So that brings us to relentless. This time, statute of limitations isn't a problem. The government does something similar and says, you know, in the absence of a statutory authorization, we can make you, the fishermen, pay the salaries of your um, um, required monitors. And uh, we come to this case develops into a a challenge to Chevron deference. Can you give us an overview of Chevron? Sure. So Chevron is a 1984 case. Uh, only six justices were part of the case, but it was unanimous of the six. It was written by Justice Stevens, and what it, it said was there was a dereg. It was the Reagan era, and there was a um, uh, regulation that came out that the power companies liked because they could they had more flexibility in how they complied with the Clean Air Act. Um, they were then sued. The agency was sued because they the. A fellow who's now very fond of Chevron, a fellow named Doniger, brought the case. And you may be, you may know him. And I don't uh, actually. Oh, okay. So he's a, a big environmental uh, litigator and, and somewhat mm. controversial. But in any event, he brought the case to say that no, you can't change the rule, um, EPA, because uh, the old regulation is is the real construction of the law and the way it should be. And then Chevron said, no, the, the agency, we give deference to the agency for any reasonable construction of the statute when it's ambiguous. And we find in this case that the statute is ambiguous as to what, uh, what a, a power source is. So um, that was it. So they said any reasonable interpretation. Well, the law stays the same, but as the agency who's running the presidency changes, the um, regulations can then change. And they can change 180 degrees. And so for 40 years, this happened. And it's interesting because the Magnuson-Stevenson Act was was amended about five years after Chevron to say that you could put these observers on boats, but nobody opposed it. As far as I can tell, nobody opposed saying that government-paid observers could be on commercial fishers, making sure, you know, the, the catch size, you get the right size fish, all that kind of thing. Um, and as far as that, my clients didn't, nobody opposed it. And then 20 years later, 20 years after that amendment, uh, NOAA and National Fisheries and Commerce start putting together these new rules to make them pay for it. So no, you never got a chance to oppose this law. So what is the current state of, uh, let's say, the best arguments against Chevron? And then I'll ask you the best arguments for it in a minute. Well, the best arguments against it are that it's unconstitutional because what it does is the Article 3 of the Constitution requires the judges to um, to interpret the law and say what the law is. That's, you know, basic John Marshall from a long time ago. Um, so in any event, that that is its key constitutional provision is that it takes the 
ability to interpret what the law means from the courts and puts it in the administrative agencies. And so it violates the Constitution in a lot of ways. Number one, this this um, regulation we're talking about, they actually put in the record why they were making this. And they were making it to avoid all the ways Congress has prevented agencies from funding themselves. There's all things like the Anti-Deficiency Act. There's a number of statutes they put in where you can't do this. You, you can't fund yourself. And then they also didn't like the amount of appropriations for observers Congress did. And that is another constitutional problem. If you If you allow Chevron and you allow it so much as in this case where they can find ways to fund themselves outside congressional control, that's another constitutional problem. And finally, there's the due process. If you litigate against any other litigant except an agency, the judge says what the law is. But if you go against an agency, they're allowed, if you can find ambiguity and they will find ambiguity, they say you got to listen to our interpretation of the law. That's that's a terrible um imbalance in due process when you face that. And finally, there's the statutory argument, which I think was overlooked. It wasn't even mentioned in Chevron. And that's the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, uh, says that judges shall interpret the law. I mean, it, it it's almost says de novo, practically. So the APA, which is how you re- review administrative regulations, is also against this. And that was a statute actually passed by Congress. There's no ambiguity about it. Yeah, the the most used and least read statute on the books, I imagine. Uh, so, Except here at NCLA. We read it all the time. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So uh, Chevron, nevertheless, has its defenders. Um, actually, one of its defenders, at least early on, uh, I don't know about later on, uh, was Justice Scalia. Uh, what, what, is, what was his defense and what, what is the sort of modern defense of Chevron that you see from the likes of Justice Kagan? All right. So I think it's it's very funny uh, talking about how, you know, Abe Lincoln talked about how the parties are two men fighting and that they had in the course of the fight gotten put on each other's coats. And I I, I think that I think that there's little of that because Scalia was big on Chevron in the early days. And Thomas wrote Brand X, which is a follow on Chevron case, which Mm -hmm. says that even if a court has approved a regulation under a statute, if the if the administrative and, and that's precedent. If the administrative body then changes the regulation and has a reasonable interpretation, the court's got to change again and approve that. So it, it's almost like the agency's overruling the courts on what the law means. So it's 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 like uh, it, it's Chevron to the tenth power almost. Mm. So, but that was by Justice Thomas, and it followed because it follows the rationale of Chevron. And I think I think here's what's going on. Um, at the time, in the 80s, there were a number of ways of judging. Textualism and originalism were not the major way of interpreting statutes in those days. And what you saw and what the criticism of non-Chevron interpretation was, the judges were inserting their policy views against that of the elected branches. And obviously, that's a no-no, too. That, that's not something you want to encourage. Um, and so... The argument was that the president, at least, is responsible to the electorate in ways that judges are not. And so, therefore, and it was a good thing that the law was responsive to changes in the presidency. So many of the bugs of Chevron were seen as features by people looking at it in the 80s. I mean, there was a lot of things that came out of the 60s and 70s. I, I always say, like like pet rocks and bell bottoms that we had to get do away with. <laughs>
So what happens then? Let's say the, the, the Supreme Court agrees with you. They overrule Chevron. Uh, what are some of the long-term effects? Are we going to find ourselves 20 years from now arguing that um, you know, maybe uh, judges are uh, interfering too much with reasonable agency action? Some are going to argue that, but I – look at the Magnuson-Stevenson Act. I always say this. It is not as if Congress has not delegated vast powers to these agencies. In the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, for instance, they always say the secretary. It means secretary of commerce. There's things he shall do and things he may, may do. And it goes on for pages, the things he may do. In this very case, the observers, the statute says he may require observers to be carried on the ships. He doesn't have to. He can take them off. He can put them on. He has vast powers in that area. So um, I don't think we're going to see this because statutes already give them an enormous amount of power. What it takes away is the ability to do judging and mm -hmm. the ability to do lawmaking, which are in other branches. So when there's ambiguity, that's the other thing. This is not a case where Congress um, express, expressly delegated anything. This is a case where it's a made-up fiction that when they didn't say something, they actually delegated the power in silence or ambiguity to the agency to make up the rule. Um, and that's just a fiction. So I think what we'll see, the long-term effects, because there is going to be that Congress, if it really wants something done, is going to have to write it clearly. When it wants to, to give, to delegate to the agencies, it's going to have to say so. It's not going to be a thumb on the scale that the agencies have all this power. When the statute runs out of authority for the agency, the agency's power will run out. It won't be, now we're going to make up more power for you. That will have consequences because right now, how, whatever regulations have been approved are going to be the regulations that are, you know, they might have been approved by Chevron or because they're clear from the statute, but the, they're going to have, it's almost going to be like musical chairs and the music has stopped. You, you, everyone's got to sit down and you only move the chairs when con Congress makes a new statute now. So if Chevron does go, what happens to the major questions doctrine? Um, well, if, if that is a good question. The, one of our arguments, Roman Martinez of Latham uh, made these arguments. He's pointed out the other side of it, which is Chevron's so bad that you have to keep making exceptions. Like you made the major questions doctrine because uh, Chevron couldn't cover it. It, it, had, it was something else. You know, Chevron doesn't apply in a major question. Um, I think what the major question says is Congress didn't delegate that, right? Mm -hmm. Here, what they're, he, they, they couldn't have delegated such an enormous issue to the agencies without saying so. I, I, I think that boils down what the major questions doctrine is now, right, right now. Um, so if they say that for everything, I think what you're going to have, there's some talk at the oral argument of Kaiserizing Chevron, in mm -hmm. other words, cabining it somewhat. But uh, I think major questioning all questions once the statute runs out is what we may get. I see. And what was your read from oral arguments? What, what do you think is the most likely outcome? Full overrule, Kaiserizing, if you will, trying to cabinet or something else? <sighs> You know, I think this depends on Barrett. Barrett played her cards very close to the vest. Um, if they have five to overrule Chevron outright, um, then then what happens? Well, if that happens, I'm pretty sure what I would do if I was chief 
Justice Roberts is I would side with the side that was going to overrule Chevron and I would write it so that I could put in all kinds of stuff about how, you know, stare decisis is going to is going to hold for all these old Chevron cases. You know, I, I, I would I would not make it as um, as acerbic as I think a Gorsuch opinion would be. Mm-hmm. So I think Chevron's going and it's going either uh, going full bore or it will be it will be so um, retreated from as to be almost uh, invisible. I see. Well, John, this has been really interesting. Thanks for the overview. Before I let you go, though, I've got to give you our uh, standard question. If you could talk to any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Hmm. Well, you know, that there's there's a number of them. Um, I I think I talked to Taney. I think I talked to Taney and I'd ask him. Uh, I don't ever, I don't remember ever seeing anyone ask him a question. He lived through the Civil War. What are you happy now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. I don't know that anybody has ever said Taney or Tawny and um that is a great question. I wonder what he would say. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you for having me. GC, with the net choice cases being heard by the court recently, I thought it might be fun to look at other cases involving tech issues. Are you ready? I am. All right. Excellent. First up, I'll throw you what I think is a softball. Which justice wrote the 2001 opinion in Kilo versus United States where the court held that when police officers use a thermal imaging device to monitor heat emissions in or around a person's home, that constitutes a search for Fourth Amendment purposes? I think that's Justice Scalia. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, his authoring of this opinion might be a surprise to some, but it shouldn't be. Uh, Justice Scalia garnered a reputation while in the court as being particularly protective of criminal defendants' rights when someone was confronted with the awesome power of a government investigation or prosecution. This particular case was a 5-4 to four decision with a somewhat unusual lineup. Justices Souter, Thomas Ginsburg, and Breyer joined Justice Scalia in the majority, while Justice Stephen dissented and was joined by Justices Rehnquist, O'Connor, and Kennedy. Uh, so much for the typical breakdowns mm-hmm. that we hear so much about. Well done, GC. All right, next up. In what 2018 case did the Supreme Court hold that the government needs a warrant to access an individual's cell site location data, essentially where someone has been based on where their phone pings on cell towers? Yes, I'm pretty sure that was Carpenter. Yeah, that's exactly right. Carpenter versus United States. Uh, This, again, was a 5-4 to decision with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority, and he was joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Justices Kennedy, Thomas Alito, and Gorsuch all dissented uh, from that case. Well done. Uh, You are up on your tech issues at the court so far. (laughs) All right. Let's move a little further back in time uh, and talk about what was then a cutting-edge technology. What invention was involved in an 1854 Supreme Court case that's still influential today in determining patent eligibility uh, involving computer software? Uh, And the technology was 
around in 1854. So keep that in mind. Okay. I mean, that, that limits things. Uh, it might be the cotton gin, but probably not if it's related <laughs> to, to computer software. Um, I'm going to guess the telegraph. Yeah, you you are on the money. Although you know the cotton gin wasn't an unreasonable uh, guess either, <laughs> but it is the telegraph. And the case is O'Reilly versus Morse, of course, named after Samuel Morse, and it's more commonly known as the telegraph patent case. Essentially, the court in that case said that an abstract idea apart from its invention is not patent eligible. Interesting. All right, you are on fire so far. I have uh, two more questions for you today. Next up, uh, television has broadcast uh, more than its fair share of cases into the Supreme Court. I see what you did there. Uh, Yeah, I thought you might (laughs) like that. I thought you might. I'll be here all week. Uh, Thank you very much. (laughs) So what comedians famously foul-mouthed delivered FCC versus Pacifica Foundation to the court where the court held that the FCC could regulate indecent content over the airwaves? Now, I'll give you a hint, GC. Uh, this comedian skit was called Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television. Well, you know pop culture is my weak point, so I don't know. Well, the comedian was George Carlin. Uh, if you Google it, this routine is fairly well known. And, of course, because Carlin lost the case, uh, we can't tell you what those words were. <laughs> Although that's not exactly <laughs> accurate uh, since uh, uh, I don't know that the FCC has uh, authority over our podcasts uh, here today. But uh, our our boss certainly does, and uh, I'm certainly not going to say anything here that's uh, going to get me in trouble that way. Oh, go ahead, GC. Uh, live a little. <laughs> Dag nabbit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to get that censored. Uh, excuse, excuse GC. <laughs> All right, last question, and it's a little harder because it's not from the Supreme Court, but it is a famous case nonetheless. In the late 1990s, Pepsi ran an advertising campaign around redeeming prizes for Pepsi points, uh, which you got by buying Pepsi. One of these advertisements featured a Harrier jump jet and said, quote, yours for 7 million Pepsi points. (laughs) Now, as any enterprising 21-year-old business student would do, John Leonard convinced investors to lend him $700,000 so that he could buy enough Pepsi products to get 7 million points. The jet was worth about $37 million, so this was actually a pretty decent idea (laughs) from John's perspective, Uh, except there was one massive flaw. GC... What was it? <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's no way that an advertisement for a Harrier jet from Pepsi constitutes an an offer to engage in a contract. So there's no way that that was a legit contract. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, because <laughs> of that, uh, Mr. Leonard and his investors were out of luck. Uh, wow. Now, I'm glad you remembered your contract law class a little bit better than I did. I think I've blocked it from my memory as being particularly (laughs) traumatic. Uh, but, uh, But well done today, GC. Thanks, Zach. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five star rating. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at SCOTUS101, and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. 
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.